bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I'm joined by the former Director of Transportation for the City of Oakland, Ryan Russo. Before his time in Oakland, Ryan also served as Deputy Commissioner with the New York City Department of Transportation. And currently, he's a principal for Together Projects, a specialty strategic advising and project management consultancy. Ryan is here today to talk all about equity-centered local transportation, building up a department from scratch, and so much more. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rana. It's great to see you with all of your accomplishments behind you. So I would love to start by helping people know a little bit about your trajectory. I know that a lot of us really admire your career, Ryan, and what you've accomplished by kind of sticking with things. So you and I first met in graduate school, maybe 20 years ago, didn't know each other that well. What was it that brought you to the field of transportation infrastructure at that moment? Made you want to study and go to school for it? Yeah, for first, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to, to be here and it's great to see you and I'm excited to talk with you today. I grew up in sort of typical New York suburbs on Long Island. And so what really got me into uh, transportation was living in New York City after college. I was actually in the finance industry with my first job out of college. I had studied business as an undergrad and moved into the Upper East Side of Manhattan, piled into an apartment with a couple of other friends, and really started to get exposed to how the city worked and really started to fall for New York City in particular and got exposed to the advocacy group for walking and biking in New York City transportation alternatives who were fighting for a more bike-friendly city. Most of the streets in New York City had really been kind of optimized for motor vehicle tra traffic, turned into one-way streets, timed for you know maximum throughput. And I started riding my bike in Central Park and started actually rollerblading to my job in Midtown Manhattan and recognizing that a city wasn't a static thing was something that kind of dawned on me through that advocacy. And then I'd always known that I didn't want to stick in finance for the long term. And that was just a nice way to pay off student loans. And I was really searching for what I wanted to be when I grew up. And as I fell for the city, I slowly was exposed to this concept that there are people involved in sort of shaping a city. So I ended up reading a book, Asphalt Nation by Jane Holtz K, which really documented the role the automobile had in depopulating cities and segregating cities. And in the end of that book, when it talked about fixing all of the wrongs of excessive automobility, it talked about the role of urban planners in pushing back and reshaping things for 
a more equitable, less segregated, more sustainable and safer sort of built form. And so that, uh, I'd never heard of what an urban planner was, but right when I read it, I felt a wash over my body and said, I think this is it for me. This is really what I want to do and sort of started to look into how do you get into that industry? So really I came to transportation, not from a specific sort of a lot of transportation influences, but really about a passion for cities themselves. And that I think a lot in this industry, we sort of get obsessed with the infrastructure and the transportation when really we need to recognize, and I said this a lot in my work over the years and in Oakland, that transportation is a, it's a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. It is there to serve our community values, whether that's equity or safety or sustainability. It has a purpose, gets us to jobs, it helps our economy, it gets us to school. I came to transportation infrastructure work with that vision and actually went out to Berkeley to study city planning without a specific focus on transportation. That's so helpful, Ryan, to hear. I'm sure for people who are thinking about the field or didn't know about it. I read the same book around the same time when I was thinking about going to graduate school and it also lit a fire me. I felt turned me into a little bit of an activist mindset, like we have to change the system. Do you feel like you've needed to have that activist mindset? Do you think you've needed to have an activist mindset to make change? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this career was certainly not about maximizing my income. It was really about listening to that advice of that you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And what I loved was the idea that cities and communities could get better and that positive change could happen. And so I came to this work with sort of a, a focus on how can I be a part and contribute to positive change and not that, oh, this job is, you get a government job, it's steady, or this career is like, is good in a recession or that kind of safety and security angle. I had the privilege of being able to take that risk, having paid off some student loans to be able to go to grad school and say, this is the career I wanted to have. I'm in this to be part of positive change, which is an activist mentality. It's definitely been something I've tried to hold on to over the last 20 or so years. Ryan, throughout your career, you've been a big advocate of expanding and implementing bicycle initiatives. Why are you so passionate about improving access and safety for cyclists and getting more people onto bikes? I'm definitely one of, of, of many people who kind of fall for so many things about cycling for transportation. It's very affordable. It's very convenient. It's very sort of freeing point to point. There's no waiting for schedules. A lot of the benefits that people say that cars bring for them, bikes really bring them too. It doesn't take up a lot of space. And then in terms of the community benefits, the more people are cycling in the community, the less space we need to use for parking, the better our air quality is. But ultimately, like at its core, I think both individually and for what I see folks who do choose to for transportation or recreation is ultimately the joy that movement can bring. The fact that your commute, this thing that, again, serves no purpose in and of itself, you're going to school or you're going to a job, it's this intermediary space. The fact that that process can do so much for you 
It can bring a smile to your face. It can help your health and well-being and can save you money versus other forms of transportation. It's brought me a lot of joy. And so a lot in my career has been about what are the barriers for that for other people in terms of their potential to access that joy, that affordability, those health benefits. And so recognize that I was like a single guy living in a city. So it's pretty easy to have a bike and use it to get around it. People are in all sorts of different circumstances, different, different housing types, different street types, different stages of life, whether you're a parent or you're elderly or, or a student. So in essence, the work is to identify what those barriers might be and make sure that those don't exist for different communities. One of the biggest barriers, of course, has been just the design of our streets that most people don't feel safe and they just have an intuitive gut sense when they open a door in a city in America that if they hopped on a bike, they wouldn't necessarily feel safe going to where they need to go. Ryan, after serving as Deputy Commissioner of New York's Department of Transportation, a really high-profile role for a number of years, you decided to make the move back west and become the city of Oakland's first permanent director of transportation. What was it about this opportunity that made you pack up and head back across the country? So becoming the city of Oakland's first transportation director was really an opportunity of a lifetime. And really what was the ultimate draw was that under the leadership of Mayor Libby Schaff, this new Department of Transportation had really put in its core DNA that it would pursue equity as a Department of Transportation. Oakland's tremendous history of being a place that stands up for racial justice and fights for equity and innovating in public policy was incredibly attractive for me. I initially got into the work, you know, the book, Asphalt Nation and other things we learned about in the 90s was so much of what outraged me were negative racial impacts, the very racialized impacts of our development patterns. The fact that the hollowing out of cities, uh, white flight, suburbanization, segregation, housing policies and transportation policies that made things less equitable and less opportunity for equality. And so I'd been passionate about, gotten into this work to try to correct those. And then I had spent many years at New York City DOT doing things that I thought were helping and I believe did help to an extent, but over the course of working to build pedestrian and cycling infrastructure projects in neighborhoods all over New York City, I came up against the tensions, bike lanes being white lanes and issues around displacement and gentrification and saw that we had had some blind spots as an organization, as a city of New York in terms of approaching equity while doing this work that was so focused on Manhattan, New York City recovering after the attacks of 9-11. So the fact that Oakland was saying, I think leading our field by saying, okay, we've been figuring out how to build bike lanes and do safety projects, but we're having these other issues around displacement. We're having other issues around belonging and all of the communities of a city not feeling a part of this work. So we're going to put that in the center of this department. And I thought, you know, this is really the leading edge of the practice and a real opportunity to establish another best practice in the field and saying, how can we do this work through that equity lens at the top. You know, that was really the big draw for me. The fact that the city of Oakland was putting equity in the center was really a tremendous opportunity to lead the entire 
transportation, infrastructure and planning field to try a new way of doing this kind of work and to potentially ultimately influence how this practice is done all over the country. Ultimately, I was a firm believer that if cities couldn't bring more people to the table and have everyone feel a part of this work, we wouldn't be able to do the work. We wouldn't have the buy-in necessary. And ultimately, we wouldn't correct the wrongs and the harms that have existed because people who were in our chairs a generation or two ago were the ones who planned the freeways that separated West Oakland from downtown, that did the redlining, that ultimately segregated communities so that we have all of these outcomes that are quite predictable based on income and based on race and background in terms of educational attainment, asthma, life expectancy. It would be a part of such a groundbreaking initiative like that was really an opportunity I couldn't say no to. Ryan, how did you know on a day-to-day basis if you were actually correcting harms or recreating them? I'm sure that was hard to discern at times. How did you check on that and check your compass? You know, there was a lot of different challenges in the city of Oakland. And really, I think I had the expectation that the equity work would be simply about the equity and the programs that we did and what would be the equity elements of our intersection mural program, Paint the Town, or of our traffic safety work. What I learned, because the city of Oakland was also the first city in California to stand up a standalone Department of Race and Equity, they served as a capacity building department internally to help train our staff and train me on the work of also internally building an equitable team. I think one of the beautiful things about Oakland is that it's not afraid to talk about race, to talk about these things. And I think our sort of failure to talk about them and tease them out and untangle them is, is one of the ways that we perpetuate the inequities that, it, that exist today. In terms of checking, Oakland is a place that will do a lot of checking for you. <laughs> Both your staff, your other departments, the city council, the mayor, and the community will be checking. But I do think to the thrust of your question, I also found it useful to do a good amount of introspection on things, but again, equipped with incredible tools and values that the city of Oakland brought to the table. I want to talk about a specific example that is really well known that you led, which is Oakland's equity initiative in road paving, pretty common activity cities and counties and states do all across the country and spend lots of money on what was so innovative and what's so necessary about having an equity-focused road paving program. Backing up just a bit, when the city council put a funding measure on the ballot for Oaklanders who were really fed up with the condition of streets and sidewalks, you know, structural deficits, the federal gas tax not being adjusted since 1993. California hadn't adjusted its state gas tax in 24 years. Proposition 13, restricting local revenues. There had been tremendous neglect and all over the city, there was tremendous frustration. So a local funding measure to fix streets and roads was put on the ballot. And the city council, to their credit, said equity has to be part of this work. 
very undefined, very amorphous. And you see that a lot in equity work that it's like a general principle. So when it came time for us to spend this money and we really said equity needs to be very clear and transparent part of how we're gonna do this work. And so the main rationale, the main policy lever that we did was traditionally cities kind of will have two ways of picking out which streets to pave, simplifying things. One is how bad a condition is the street in? Does it deserve to be repaved? And then who's really asking for it? Our council, our communities or council members making noise about that problem. And that is something that can really exacerbate and perpetuate inequities because who has the capacity to kind of make that noise? Have a team member who called it the essay contest, you know, who can write the longest, most dramatic email about how their decrepit street causes hardship. It's certainly not going to be the neighborhood where you have a single parent household or people whose English is a second language, people who are 50% of their income going to rent and they're working two jobs, those folks don't have time to write the essay contest. And so responding to the essay contest can perpetuate and exacerbate inequities. Hey, you know, is your street deserving of repaving? There are streets all over Oakland that are deserving it. Who do you go to first? We said, we're going to weight our decisions 50% based on road condition, but also 50% on demographics, equity factors. And the rationale is that, again, if you're, you know, severely rent burdened, that was a demographic factor we took into account. If your neighborhood's filled with people who are severely rent burdened, you know, 50% of your income's going to rent and we have an affordable housing and homelessness crisis in California and nationally, and you break an axle or a rim in one of our potholes, that could be the difference between you becoming homeless. You don't have a backup car. You might have the kind of job where if you're late or you miss a shift, you lose that job. People are living underneath our freeways in homeless encampments, and we don't want our transportation policy to do that. Now, if you're in a wealthier neighborhood and you break your rim or pop a tire in one of our potholes, that's not going to be as big a blow. It's going to be frustrating and annoying, but you might have a second car in the garage. You might have the kind of car insurance that delivers you a backup car. And you have a job, most likely, that if it's white collar, that, you know, it's not really shift work. You can survive that blow. So we were really passionate about being really explicit and really clear that this was going to be a factor that picked out which neighborhoods we would be working in, what amounts, and how we would budget that paving pie in the different parts of our city. Wow, that's really powerful the way you describe that and reminds me that most of transportation is just for people's daily human lives. And you have to go down a line of inquiry to understand what their daily lives are like and how government can help or make things worse for them. And you're talking about local paving. Do you think that same line of inquiry applies to big infrastructure projects or, you know, a train expansion or a bridge? Should we be asking how it affects people's daily lives and who's affected by the investment? Oh, absolutely. I think what your question is getting at is a little bit of the like, Etatization we get with large-scale infrastructure projects that the project, again, becomes an end in and of itself. But really, how well have we articulated how it's going to help people? And, you know, the thing that I've loved about 
the smaller bore infrastructure work, filling potholes and fixing broken sidewalks, where we've many cities, Oakland is one of many cities, a lot in California, who trip senior citizens on crap sidewalks and then end up paying money anyway in the settlement for the injuries that that has caused. Foundationally, I think you need, when people open their door, the sidewalk and the road are like the most visible first thing that government provides that people see. It is foundational to whether communities have trust and faith in government's ability to do things. And so if the sidewalks are broken and the streets are littered with potholes, you really can't talk to people about a beautiful new bridge or a high-speed rail system or a light rail system or a bus rapid transit system because they don't believe that you can do the basics. So unfortunately, when maintenance has been something that's not as exciting to an elected official as a ribbon cutting, we've kind of gotten away from that. And so ultimately, it's this trust, and this is one of the four big values at Oak Dodd, again, under Mayor Schaaf's leadership that we had. Equity was the big one. Safety, you know, we're talking about moving around a transportation system. Sustainability, we need to make sure we leave this place for the next generation so that it's still here. And then the last one was trust. And I really started to appreciate that this basic level of having streets and sidewalks in good repair could help you build trust with a community that you can then do these other things. You can do a bike plan, you can do a neighborhood plan or, or a dramatic project because you've built this sort of base level of trust between government and the communities that it serves. So Ryan, as of June of 2022, you made the decision to step down from your position in Oakland and return home to New York where you currently serve as principal at Together Projects. Tell us about Together Projects and what can you tell us about this next chapter in your career? I've been incredibly blessed in my career. I feel a bit like Forrest Gump to have been in the right place in the right time and in a bunch of the rooms where it happened over the course of 20 years, about 14 at New York City DOT and got to be a part of a number of transformative and groundbreaking initiatives. And then the last five at the city of Oakland, it's not often you get the opportunity to build a new department and sort of set it off in, in its initial phases. You know, we're usually in, inheriting something and to be a part of the first transportation department that's really centering you know, equity in its work. And so what I've loved about that is also the deep dive aspect. You really get in it and you almost have blinders on to the rest of the world. You look at best practices and other things, but really beginning of my career is, again, I studied city planning. And city planning is really about a set of training that gives you a set of lenses to see the world a certain way and to see different situations and contexts and sort of operate in those contexts with that same lens, but recognizing the unique cultures and built forms and neighborhoods that exist in those places. And so I really kind of wanted to put on those city planning lens, that broader lens, and bring the experience I had at being in as part of a lot of innovations and knowing and seeing that government can be a little bit risk averse at times and not willing to take those leaps. I've been in those rooms and those, and I've taken those leaps and and held my breath when a new traffic configuration has been put in place and you hope it doesn't all fall apart. And I really want to help other cities recognize that taking those risks is worth it. 
And so, you know, at Together Projects, the idea is that cities around the country and state DOTs that might be risk averse could hear the stories of the risks that were taken and working together, we can build the communities that we all would love to see, the really values-driven transportation policies and programs that I think everyone should be adopting. Ryan, I imagine that you're working with cities or aiming to work with cities that are interested in infrastructure funding and new infrastructure projects. And that can be a stressful or overwhelming ordeal for any leader. How do you help leaders find order in this chaos and in the opportunity? I think it's a really exciting moment. And I was lucky enough to work for three years at the New York City Department of Transportation under the commissioner of the department was Polly Trottenberg. And now she's deputy secretary. She's Secretary Pete Buttigieg's number, number two at the USDOT and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act really create tremendous opportunities for communities around the country to access funding to really serve their values. But yes, each pot of money each set of program, each notice of funding opportunity can be a bit overwhelming. And I think one of the concerns that, you know, the USDOT has, the commute transportation community as a whole has cities sort of set up to, are they prepared to take most advantage of these opportunities? And so it's really an all hands on deck type approach to get everyone prepared. And I think in the experience that I've had, I just want to play a part in helping communities, governments have the capacity to access that funds. Another passion of mine that developed over these last five years is just the capacity of government. It's always been, cities are working with what we refer to as legacy systems. These are old systems, typically thought of as like an old computer system that maybe is managing your payroll or something. But one of the legacy systems is the civil service, something that's a lot of cities haven't really touched much or few generations, and that's really making it hard to recruit and retain great people. And so cities, I think, are most overwhelmed by the fact that they need to have great people. I would love to even help advise cities on how they can recruit and retain a representative, inclusive, and passionate workforce, because that's really key to getting the job done. And again, in my 19 years in local government, Basically, there's people who get the credit, who get to be interviewed on a podcast or written about in an article, but it's the whole set of folks behind that who really cared and really committed and really sacrificed for every like exciting accomplishment that, that you read about. And I think we forget that at our peril. Shout out to everyone at OakDot and to all the people who make these projects happen in cities. If you could fix civil service, that would be an incredible gift to humanity, Ryan, at this time, because we need people to get the work done in cities and to achieve sustainability and safety and all of that. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. After being away for six years, how do you find New York? In the meantime, COVID happened or is still happening. A lot of policy changes happened. What does the city look like to you now? Having done a cross-country move four times now, the comparative perspective is, is something I'd really appreciate. And I think there's a lot of cities around the country are facing a lot of the same struggles and uptick in interpersonal violence, trains of ridership being down, issues of homelessness, issues of cleanliness of the public realm. And I think New York has a lot of the analogous challenges to 
what you see, at what I saw City of Oakland facing and continuing to face. But there, there is an element of, um, I think, of vibrancy and health here that really is about the mixed-use neighborhoods that exist throughout the city of New York. While Midtown Manhattan still struggling due to the levels of remote work and, and office vacancy, mixed-use neighborhoods that now have a mix, enough people staying home and in the neighborhood, coffee shops that were usually just bustling on a Saturday or Sunday because most of the people in the neighborhood got on the subway and went to work, they have activity. They have sort of a nice level of activity seven days a week. There seem to be more people on the sidewalks, more people crossing streets, kind of on a consistent basis. While I think a lot of New Yorkers have seen these struggles and feel like it's a rough time for the city of New York, I see it and I see, you know, where Oakland, you know, doesn't have as much of that density and mixed use neighborhoods to sort of provide that kind of foundation. I feel like that foundation is helping New York City. So one last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? There's lots of infrastructure around the world that I'd love to see, but I think about a category that I've never seen, which is you see this in Copenhagen or in Japan, these incredibly elaborate, sophisticated bike parking garages. There's the ones in Tokyo that kind of suck your bike down into a basement. In Utrecht, where there's ramps and floors and levels and beautiful lighting and beautiful design. And to think of only keep working for and wishing for cities that rely on bicycles for transportation that you end up building such elaborate structures for cycling at, at train stations. I think the people who get to do that to bike and then take an intercity high-speed rail train to another city, I think those are probably happy people. Well, thank you, Ryan, for being here on the show. We really appreciate you sharing your insights and ideas, and thank you for all the great work you've done in our cities. I want to give a big thank you to Ryan Russo for being with us today. It's really amazing to learn about the work he did to bring more equity to the city of Oakland's transportation system. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Bratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. Ansarada.